Now, I'm told that we have a little time, yes, for I've rattled on longer than I said I would, but uh, we have little time left for questions. And if you shout them out, I will repeat them because there's a recording or something that we need to repeat them for, and I'll make sure everybody can hear them. So questions or comments or just abuse, you know, um, um, uh, would be fine. I've said some unsettling things, and I'm fine to be uh, unsettled right back. Here's, that's the, maybe the most key question of all. How do developed countries, how can we help them on the one hand develop and on the other hand not burn fossil fuel? And it's the central question, all right? China and India both have large quantities of fossil fuel, of coal in particular, okay? They're both very poor, though they've been growing fast. Those of you who've been to either one know that they remain predominantly poor countries. And the easiest way for them to alleviate that poverty would be exactly the same way we did, which is to burn tons and tons of coal and get wealthy in the process or richer, acquire the, essentially the kind of slaves that we acquired by having easy access to lots of fossil fuel. They're also the places that are gonna be hit among the first and hardest by these rises in temperature, all right? And so they're willing to deal. They're willing to come to Copenhagen and strike some kind of bargain. But part of that bargain is gonna have to include the concept of sharing some of the wealth that we have built up in two centuries of burning cheap fossil fuel in such a way, mostly in the form of technology, to allow them to kind of leapfrog that step. In essence, we have to help them pay some of the extra cost of building windmills across Mongolia to replace coal mines uh, uh, you know, across Sichuan. That's a lot to ask of us, especially in a period of economic crisis. It's gonna be an enormous test of our maturity and our willingness to share and our willingness to understand that even in our reduced condition, we remain rich by comparison to the rest of the world. I'm not sure it's possible. Uh, if there's anything that makes me dubious about our prospects, it's that. But it's the reason more than anything else that we're running this campaign in a global way so that people around the world understand that there's a target they need to get to. And it's very tough to say that to people in China and India and elsewhere, okay? And very moving to watch them try to come to terms with it and understand it. The problem is, and here's the way to understand the fix that we're in, it's not like a normal political negotiation in that it's not really between different groups of people. At times it appears to be, you know, between America and China, between Republicans and Democrats, between coal mine owners and environmentalists, whatever. But the real bargaining that's going on, the real confrontation is between human beings on the one hand and chemistry and physics on the other, all right? And the problem with that kind of negotiation is that chemistry and physics are extremely uninterested in compromise, in bargaining, in meeting us halfway, in anything like that. We know enough about science now to know what we have to do, and the only question is how we arrange the burden of doing that uh, uh, around the Earth. And that's what those negotiations are about, and it's one of the reasons that we need to be reminding our leaders not only that we have to cut our own emissions, but also that we bear a certain amount of responsibility to the rest of the world.
it's a very good question because they're, they're, because a lot of people ask the same question. The truth is that among scientists who study climate, all right, there's no debate, and there hasn't been for many years, about the basic outlines of the problem. Among peer-reviewed scientists working on climate, the outlines of this have been very clear for a very long time. That doesn't mean that there aren't people, uh, you know, uh, who, who have consistently tried to sort of cherry-pick data to make an ideological point, all right? And the, and the tragedy of it is that they're generally doing it from a kind of partisan political viewpoint that they don't, that they don't need to, that they shouldn't be. I think the syllogism in most people's minds who I have met who are, remain skeptical about all this goes like this. I believe that free markets solve all problems. Free markets aren't solving global warming. Therefore, global warming is not a problem. Okay? <laughs> now, that's not a very good syllogism, but you can understand why it's emotionally comforting. The real sadness of it is, however, that it masks the truth that it's precisely free markets more than anything else that we need to solve this problem, all right? What we, the only real thing that government needs to do is set a cap on carbon. Do what the, you know, set a cap that respects what the scientists have tell us about how much carbon we can pour into the atmosphere. That'll have the effect of raising the price of fossil fuel. And then markets will go to work very quickly to figure out all the cheapest ways to deal with that new price. And we can do that without bankrupting ourselves. The quite conservative, almost libertarian approach to doing this goes like this, and it's the one that the Obama administration is increasingly talking about adopting. It's called cap and dividend, all right? You cap the amount of fossil fuel going into the atmosphere. You make Exxon buy a permit every year to release that CO2. It's expensive. It's going to cost them a lot. They're going to pass the, the price onto you at the pump. Gas will go back up to $4 a gallon, okay? That's a good thing because when gas went to $4 a gallon last year, it was the first time since Americans invented the car that we started driving less, all right? We started figuring out about mass transit, whatever. On the other hand, at the moment if we do that, it'll bankrupt a lot of people. So what do you do? You take all that money you've collected from ExxonMobil and Peabody Coal and whoever else, and instead of giving it to the Congress to spend, you simply write a check for every American every month or every year. You get your share of that, that pot back, all right? So on the one hand, you're still getting the price signal at the pump or wherever else that causes you to change your behavior. And on the other hand, you're being made whole against the price of it. And it has the added advantage, I must say, of not allowing Congress to then go try and pick the winners and losers among technologies, okay? Which they tend to do based on who has the most political clout, not on what the smartest technology would be. Far better to let markets make those decisions, right? So it's trying to get across to people that it doesn't need to be some kind of huge, you know, socialist plot to deal with this that it has to be something that respects scientific reality 
and respects the fact that markets move things quickly enough to give us a shot. That's the mix that we badly need. And one hopes that it's the direction that we're now starting to go uh, in, in, in the new administration. We shall see. Very good. The second question, the second part of that especially, that there are a lot of people who take this and say, well, this is just we're being punished for our sins, or who say this is just God's will, or who say in a kind of secular version, and I hear this often, you know, well, the earth will go on, you know, um, which is all more or less true enough, you know. If you stand back far enough, none of this matters. The sun is going to blow up in another couple of billion years, at which point, who cares, you know? Um, um, but that requires more distance than I'm easily capable of assuming, you know? We were born into the late Pleistocene with this great collection of animals and civilizations and plants and things around us. It seems worth the effort of one's life to try to preserve some remnant of that, especially since. I mean, you know, what is it that we're told all through the creation story? I mean, the most moving part of the creation story is that, you know, each day at the end of it, God stands back a little bit and says, ooh, that's good, you know? I mean, it's, it's a slightly, you know, it's, it's slightly, you know, not the most humble sort of, I say, oh, very good, I'm doing a, quite a good job I'm doing here, you know? But it's quite true. I mean, it is a very beautiful job, you know? That we're born under this incredibly sweet planet. And now we're decreating it. Now we're taking that very great gift of dominion that we were given, and which clearly is true, you know, a word that means in the Hebrew is sort of to, you know, the same word that you, you know, uh, the, the king over his subjects, or, or I mean, it's the, it's the equivalent of what we're doing, the equivalent of as if you left your kids with the babysitter, you know, and said, you, you're in charge for the night, and you came home from the movies, and your kids all had tattoos, you know, and, uh, you know, uh, we're not exercising that dominion in any way that, you know, corresponds with who we could be. And those are the reasons that it, you know, reaches some kind of deep moral dimension. That and the fact that we're, that, that, that the immediate victims of this, first and foremost, aren't us, but poor people who've done nothing at all to cause it. The question is, what are some, instead of little things, what are some radical things we can do tomorrow to change this? And I gotta tell you the truth, nothing you can do tomorrow 
can have any significant effect on this, okay? Um, the only thing that you can do that has any hope of dramatically changing this situation is to engage in collective political action that changes the ground rules under which we're dealing with carbon. Now, it's very important to change your light bulbs, you know. I've, I have a prize for having the most energy efficient house in the state of Vermont. My daughter, a great Harry Potter fan, refers to me as the Dark Lord because I turn out the lights with such, you know, um, uh, assiduousness. Um, 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 uh, you know, I drove the first hybrid car in my state. I spent a year feeding my family only from food grown in our valley. All these things are all very important, especially the kind of building local economic institutions and things. But given the scale of the problem we have and the time we have, they're token gestures, one by one, against against the problem that we face. The only thing that'll work is that political action that changes things on a total scale. So let me give you an example. An obvious thing that one could do would be to eat lower on the food chain than we're eating, all right? Because livestock, at least the way that we insist on raising it in this country, grain-fed, whatever, um, uses, produces a lot of carbon emissions along the way. Depending on how you count it, it might be a fifth of the world's carbon emissions, okay? So that's something you could do. But try to imagine going around the world and convincing everyone or even any useful fraction of the world to change their diet in a huge way in the next year or two, three or four years, okay? You can't, it obviously is not gonna happen. But if you put that cap on carbon, and change the price of fossil fuel, the thing that undergirds, say, the livestock raising system that we have in this country is the endless availability of cheap fossil fuel, a fossil fuel that isn't priced to reflect the damage that it does to the atmosphere. If you changed that variable and that variable alone, you would do an enormous amount to shift eating habits all around the world. And the thing about political change is it does not require everyone to go along. It doesn't even require 51% of people to go along, okay? Almost everything, you know, almost anything can be accomplished by five or 6% of people if they get vocal and get involved and work. That's enough in a democratic system to shift most things. This won't be an easy fight, you know. The other side is the most profitable industry on earth. Uh, ExxonMobil made more money last year than any company in the history of money, okay? Um, but the only possibility is to make change at that level, which is why I spend my time engaged in this kind of political organizing. Not in liberal political organizing, not in partisan political organizing, but in organizing, in essence, around scientific reality. That's why 350 becomes such a useful number. So in the next six months, the thing that you could do that would really stand some chance of making a transformational difference is to dig into this kind of work. Very good question. How do we meet our energy needs in a radically carbon-constrained world? Because we would have to shut down to meet that target, the world would have to be out of the business of burning coal 
by about 2030, and we probably need to do it sooner here. That's an enormous change, okay? And I'm not gonna, part of what I'm saying is we should be careful about trying to predict or pick the exact mix of technologies. That's the role of markets, and that's what they'll do more efficiently. But I can offer you some guesstimates as to what direction they'll go based on the trends we see now, okay? The first thing to realize is no silver bullet solutions. We already had our magic fuel. Coal, gas, and oil were great stuff, rich in BTUs, easy to get at, easy to transport, too bad they're wrecking the world, okay? Nothing replaces them one for one. Uh, renewable energy by its very nature is more disparate, uh, diffuse, okay? The things that we sometimes hope would replace them one for one almost certainly won't. Nuclear power is the example most often given. The problem with nuclear power is less the risks that you all know about, although those are real, uh, you know, less the risk of spilling radioactivity into the atmosphere, more the risk of spilling red ink forever, okay? Um, they're so expensive that they'll soak up all the money that we need to deal with this issue. Uh, uh, at latest, uh, the latest estimates in the last six months or so indicate that building new nuclear plants in this country would bring power in at about 25 cents a kilowatt hour, all right? Construction costs are enormous. The uranium is getting harder to find, on and on and on. I think we'll go much more towards renewables, but I think that the thing that we will figure out first is that by far the cheapest way to do this and fastest is with radical and dramatic programs of energy conservation. Learning to use much less energy than we use now. And it's very possible to do that. In fact, in the US, the first 20%, we're such energy wastrels that we won't even notice the first 20%, you know? We're like, it'll be like, you know, losing weight by cutting your hair, you know? Um, <laughs> it, it won't be difficult. Um, 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 you know, look at, there's probably people in this room who've been to Western Europe in recent years. They lead, you know, they're not living in caves. They lead reasonably dignified lives in Italy or Paris or Germany or whatever. They're using about half as much energy per person, okay? Half's a big number. And once you've cut demand in half, then it becomes possible to think about these renewable sources in much more interesting ways. Germany, Germany leads the world in solar power, solar photovoltaics. They've had a concentrated government program to allow what they call feed-in tariffs to promote people putting them on their roofs, okay? So they lead the world, and that's, I don't know, some of you have been to Germany? It's really not very sunny, you know? There's this sort of Wagnerian fog, you know, much of the time, okay? Much less good for this than Indiana, but they have the resource, the natural resource that so far we've lacked, a kind of political will to make it happen. Okay? That's what we've got to summon. And once we do, the technology, in a sense, will be the easier half. No silver bullets, maybe enough silver buckshot if we pick it all up to do what we need to do. Uh, the, uh, the question's about um, one of these many silver bullets, so silver buckshots, okay, or pieces of buckshot. Uh, a thing called biochar, which involves taking organic material and 
charring it, the pyrolysis, burning it in a low oxygen environment, and then burying the resulting char underground where it apparently stays inert for a long time. We know this because people did it in the Amazon thousands of years ago, and you can still see these black veins of soil. And the virtue of this is that, in, in essence, it's, it's almost like mining coal in reverse, okay? It's taking carbon out of the atmosphere and storing it someplace where it's not. It may or may not work on any huge scale because you might have to devote too much land area to doing it and, and so on and so forth. But it's symptomatic of the kind of clever thinking that we're going to need and all the different advantages that we're going to need to be looking for as we go forward. And let's hope that we come up with a few good wild cards like that as we go along. At best, it would account for help maybe 10% of the problem, but 10% no nothing to sneeze at if we can make it work. And final question in the back there. October 24th. Uh, what are some things that you know, political action that we can do between now and then? These are. Um, and also, if you could quickly decipher what having to do with global warming and the stimulus bill. Okay. What what's in the stimulus bill, and what can you do while you're waiting for October 24th to roll around? Okay. Very good questions. Uh, the stimulus bill is an interesting recognition on Obama's part that we're going to have to try in the environment that we're in to solve several things at the same time. Uh, we've all heard Rahm Emanuel say in the last couple of weeks that a crisis is a terrible thing to waste, okay? And they're making good on that in the attempt to stick some money into that stimulus bill that not only will stimulate the economy, but will do it in ways that help build the future that we need, all right? So, some of that money is going for stuff that, frankly, we don't need. You know, there are places that are building more highways, which is the last thing in the world that we should be working on, all right? But there are other places that are going to use it to build trains, which is a very good idea. Um, you know, I, I like the train track running through the middle of campus here, and what a shame it is that you can't get on the train and that it's only for coal, you know, it's not for people. Um, um, it'd be very nice to, you know, use some of that stimulus money to make sure that the train stopped here once in a while. You can go to Chicago on the train, you know, that'd be nice. Um, um, and things like that will help uh, at least some. They're going to be, for the moment at least, small down payments on the work that we need to do, but at least we're headed in the right direction in certain ways and beginning to, to beginning to understand that the problems that we face, the deep problems, are linked in powerful ways, all right? And I think the most moving thing about, I gotta say I feel a great burst of tenderness towards Obama, uh, almost like watching your child try to struggle with something. I mean, you know, we've given this guy an essentially impossible job, you know? Every, you know the country is broken, here you run it now, you know? Um, <laughs> And, and to watch him try to do several smart things at the same time is very moving to me. And one has to hope and help in any way one can. To, and, to, and to see, uh, this, will, this is the only partisan comment I will make tonight, to see Rush Limbaugh say, I hope he fails, is one of the most maddening things I've almost ever heard. Um, um, 
one of the most unpatriotic things I've ever heard anyone say. Um, as to what you can do for October 24th, you know, beginning now, um, one thing you can do is make sure that everybody around starts to understand what this number means, you know? So talk to your legislators about it, your senators and congressmen, because these are things that are already active in Congress in the lead up to Copenhagen. Make them understand that we need deep change. Start talking about this number, and there's plenty of material at 350.org to help you, you know, in Sunday school, in class, in community. And start planning something really grand for October 24th that'll really catch people's attention. And in the process of organizing it, you'll have no choice but to be making this number and its implications known everywhere. Um, that's a really important, that's, that's the most important thing that we could be doing right now. I said before that I don't know it's gonna work or not, and I don't. But I do know that it's going to be extraordinarily moving on that day to watch those images come in from every corner of the world onto the web so that everybody can see them. We'll have a huge screen up at the UN in New York so people can see them there too in real time. It's going to be extraordinarily moving to watch them come in. And I'm going to look with great anticipation to see what Goshen has produced on that day. So thank you all very much. Thank you so much, Bill, for your commitment and drive and, and passion and, uh, and mentoring to all of us. Uh, you're a hero of mine, so thank you very much. And uh, give yourselves a round of applause. This is fantastic seeing this many people here. It, it made me verklempt, so thank you. And, one thing, I, one thing I heard from, from Bill that's very important, and, I, I, and this is the main thing I heard, was get out and talk. And meeting, talk to your friends, talk to your parents, talk to your family, talk to your preachers, talk to your administrators, talk to your uh, mayors, uh, congresspeople, senators, uh, talk to everybody. And it's more that we just have to dialogue, and that's one thing I've learned from Obama, is we need to get out there and communicate to each other. So thank you, and go out and talk. And uh, just to let you know, there's books for sale, and Bill will be signing books out in the lobby. So thank you again for coming. And thank you very much for Gerald.